Hey guys, welcome to Behind the Slate. I'm your host, Aaron Strand, and this is the first of what I'm calling One Reelers. These are going to be shorter episodes that I'll put out between the major story episodes. They're going to be a little looser, uh, a little less heavy on the research. Uh, we might, you know, we're going to read some listener emails. We might discuss some news that pertains to the topic. You know, we'll get some interviews going on. It's going to be a lot of fun. But if you were hoping to hear part two of Charlie Chaplin today, don't worry. It will be out next Friday, November the 18th. Listen, I'm going to be honest. These main episodes take a long time to research and write. I'm currently trying to synthesize about nine different Chaplin biographies. Oh, my God. And they all have a different point of view, which is so helpful, but also so difficult because to not read one or to leave one out is like you're really leaving out some important information. So it's taking a long time to go through all of this. And plus, I've got all these little contextual side quests that I like to go on, some of which don't even end up in the show. As a working filmmaker who's also a husband and the father of a seven-month-old, it's kind of impossible at this point for me to get an episode out every week. So going forward, you know, I'm going to get the main stories out every two weeks. And then in between, I'll do a one-reeler like this. But first off, I just need to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. An overwhelming thank you for everyone who listened to episode one of Charlie Chaplin. I am blown away, really. The gratitude, the gratitude that I feel is overwhelming. All week I've been getting texts and DMs from folks who've been listening, and it means so much to me. You know, I've been a working artist for a long time, and I am very familiar with the feeling of, you know, pouring your heart into a piece and putting it out there and hearing nothing but crickets. So to have this kind of response off of one episode is just so overwhelming. And thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's inspiring. It makes me want to keep this thing going for as long as I can and as long as you enjoy it. And it just makes me want to work that much harder. So yeah, I've never made a podcast before. This is all totally new to me. You know, I'm, I'm writing the episodes. I'm recording right now in my wife's office because I live on a street that's too busy to record at home without having audio interference. I'm trying to figure it out. I've already been told that I should have put out multiple episodes all at once to get people hooked. Whoops. But you're here. You're a part of this. If you like the work that we've got going on so far, you know, tell your friends, tell your family. If they th if you think they might enjoy this kind of long-form history about film, that kind of stuff is a really huge deal, and it really helps out just a completely young DIY project like this. Anyway, today is going to be kind of low-key. Um, I just wanted to share a couple listener emails that I got uh, after episode one. As always, you can email me behind the slate pod at gmail.com. That's behind the slate pod at gmail.com. Or you can message me at stranded on stage. Okay, first message is from Jess. She writes, Hey, Aaron, love the pod. My question is What is your favorite fact about Charlie Chaplin that you couldn't fit into this episode? Well, Jess, let me tell you, I put all the facts into the episode. Scrupulous research over here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, there was definitely some things that had to be left on the cutting room floor for just pacing uh, and timing. You know, nothing major. You know, I always try to, like, identify the major through line of the episode and try to, like, you know, stick to that. Um, one of the things that got left out was that, okay, so when Charlie is 14... And when his mom goes back into the insane asylum, 
and you know this kind of this major major turning point of his life and according to him he starts hanging out with these wood choppers and it's these guys who like go around and they gather scrap wood from like construction sites and stuff and then they bring it all back and chop it up and then resell it as firewood and he starts hanging out with them you know daily and uh he hangs around enough where they start like letting him like take part in it and he, this is what he does these days instead of just um wandering the streets for no reason and he gives this really interesting character descriptions where he says you know the boss has this diabetic red nose and he has no upper teeth except for one fang and then one of the other workers named joe suffered from what he calls fits uh, which is epilepsy and so he has these seizures as they're chopping the wood where he'll like collapse and start foaming at the mouth and bite his tongue and then the boss would burn brown paper bags under his nose to revive him Anyway, one day the boss invites the crew and Charlie to go see Fred Carnot's silent comedians that are playing nearby, the group that Charlie would soon join. But Joe got so overexcited about going to the show that he precipitated another seizure. And so they're like trying to go to the show and but trying to like revive Joe who's on the ground. And um Finally, they got Joe back up. Charlie's boss insists that he needs to stay here and help Joe out. But Joe goes, no, no, go ahead. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And uh, that's how Charlie saw the first Carnot comedians was with this weird boss who we don't even know his name. You know, it's just kind of fun. Well, no, it's not fun at all. It's just a weird detail of his life. It doesn't really fit into kind of the overall thrust of the narrative. But I don't know. There's something about that that I really, really like. Now, it is from his autobiography. And I'm going to be honest, I kind of don't believe anything that he says in the autobiography. I mean, we'll get into it, particularly in episode three. Um, His omissions and the things that he lies about are egregious and horrible and shocking. And it really casts a pale of doubt over everything. Uh, So anyway, I don't know if this is true, but he certainly paints an interesting picture. And it's kind of crazy to think, you know, had Sid not come back from that sea voyage that he was on, I mean, Charlie Chaplin could have dithered away chopping wood for who knows how long. I mean, that's, that could have become his life. All of us encounter these threshold moments, you know? It gets back to the whole writing hero's journey notion, right? We all start in our act one where we have, um, where we're in a state of spiritual stasis and we get up to this threshold and we either go into the new and special world or we don't and it's this critical decision point i think you know for chaplin this moment when his mom went back in the asylum and he's lost with the wood chippers is this moment for this chapter of his story now there are other things that i left out of this episode but i think i will probably come back to them in a later episode and this might be a subject that we want to revisit later on because this guy you will see as he grows up and as he becomes an adult, literally his every day would have been the most exciting and or like most horrible day of my life. And that's just Tuesday to Charlie Chaplin. He's, he is ridiculous. Uh, the number of crazy things this guy did and got into. Some of them are very horrible. Some of them are very interesting. He, he does so much crazy shit. Um, well, maybe we'll get into that more in another uh, one reeler in the future. Okay, moving on here. Dominique wrote, asking a possibly stupid question, 
On your podcast, will you be highlighting any cinematographers as well? Are cinematographers considered directors? I recently read a story about James Wong Howe and would love to know more about him. First of all, not a stupid question at all. Uh, Thank you so much for asking. Yes, directors and cinematographers are technically different roles, even though directors can be cinematographers and cinematographers can, of course, be directors. On a film, the director is the person who's kind of keeping the whole film on task. They're the one that needs to kind of have a really strong grasp of the through line of the story and then be the ultimate decision maker on how to use the actors, cameras, lights, and sounds to illustrate that through line. Now, there are directors who are super controlling about every little thing. There are directors who are incredibly loose, you know, kind of just trusting their collaborators to do what they think is best. Now, cinematographers would be considered one of those collaborators, right? Cinematographer just refers to anybody who operates the camera. But on a film set, the person who's the head of the camera department would be called the director of photography, or DP for short. And they are in charge of arranging the camera setups selecting what lenses to use and usually they're collaborating with the director on all the stuff but you know they're they're really the one who's supposed to be the guiding hand and then they also direct the lighting setup making sure that the image is exposed correctly and that the lights kind of illustrate the mood and the vibe and everything that they're going for so then they work closely with the grips the people who set up the lights to make all that happen so you know that's the answer to the first question not stupid at all and thank you so much for asking Now, while I say that this podcast is about the life and work of cinema's greatest directors, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just a film lover. James Wong Howe is a groundbreaking cinematographer, and his story is really important as a Chinese immigrant who rose to this huge position of prominence in a predominantly white male Hollywood. And honestly, I don't know enough about him at all. And even worse, I was reviewing his filmography after reading this question, and I've seen like maybe two of the 70 films he shot, uh, which is uh, horrible. So I would love to get more uh, into him and learn more about his work. So why not, you know? And this kind of speaks to a certain fluidity and experimentalness of this project of, of Behind the Slate. Yeah, you know how I said that there was going to, you know, just in the last episode that there was going to be the season one thing covering strangers in a strange land? Yeah, uh, I think I'm going to scratch all that. Um, First of all, at my current rate of production, uh, a season of 10 directors is going to take me about two years. So that seems a little ridiculous. And uh, secondly, you know, despite my claims that I want to jump from different times and nationalities... My original season one plan was actually pretty chronological, and I kind of don't want to keep talking about the same time period over and over because a lot of the same contextual events are happening, and I just don't want to get stuck where I'm I'm repeating, you know, uh, the same sort of global events that are shaping these artists repeatedly. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely open to kind of jumping around. I want to look for somebody not from the silent era uh, to cover next. And so if you have any ideas or requests, people that you want me to cover, people that you think are really interesting that we should talk about, email me, DM me. I want to know what you think. Yeah, let's get James Wong Howe in here. You know, let's just do whatever's fun. Okay, uh, moving on. Eric writes, hey, Aaron, loving the first episode of the pod. Thank you so much. I'm curious what made you choose history as the lens through which to view these films. Yeah, thank you so much for the question. You know, first, I think that 
historical context is really important when it comes to art. And it's, it's interesting because right. Great art should be enjoyable all on its own. There's, there's an excitement when you walk into a movie theater and you see a, a piece, you see a film that has absolutely no context, right? You go in totally blind, you have no idea. And then all of a sudden you're just ensconced within the world of the film and taken into this magical place. Listen, that is awesome. But I find it really important to be able to place a movie within the context. I want to know kind of what came out at the same time. I want to know what's happening in the world because I think all those things really deepen the experience. I have friends and probably many of you have friends and maybe you yourself feel this way where it's, you're like, you know, I just want to watch whatever came out now. You know, I, I don't want to, why would I watch an old movie? It's old. That sort of impermanence to film just doesn't sit right with me. I, look, I'm not just a film guy. I'm also a big sports guy. Okay. I love sports. And one of the things that's amazing about sports is the way that they teach their history. You know, they do such a good job of it to, to people who don't really want to know the history, who don't think they want to know the history. And all of a sudden they're watching documentaries about, you know, the top 10 greatest running backs of all time. And they're hearing about um, players that played long before they were born. And all of a sudden you end up with a generation of people who knew who won the Super Bowl in 1971. I, I can't think of who won the Super Bowl in 1971 off my uh, off the top of my head, probably the Cowboys or the Steelers, but whatever. Still, you end up with people who know the history of their sport, even with if they didn't live it. They understand the, pro the progression of their sport throughout time. And as filmmakers, I think, and artists, we should do the same thing. There's something weird that... In art, because it's not competitive, because the results are not quote-unquote objective, I think the, the subjectivity of art softens our desire to kind of place hard edges on it. I don't know, it, it, it lowers the stakes of, of the way that we consume it. All this to say, film doesn't do a good enough job teaching its history. Film as a medium itself, I think, is actually quite bad at teaching history. Now, not documentary is separate. Documentaries can be very helpful, but fiction film, I think, is a does a poor job of teaching history. I've never seen a biopic that I thought did a good job of uh, coming close to illustrating sort of all the nuances of a character. Biopics have a way of really flattening and simplifying a person's story to the point where it's borderline offensive, to be honest. When it comes to film itself as a medium, there's two things that are really important that I think are totally underappreciated by even so-called film fans. Number one is that outside of the mass adoption of color and sound, basically everything in film was tried by like 1918, okay? <laughs> if someone claims to have, inv have invented some technical whatever after that, I'd be highly suspect. The creative explosion that happened in the first 20 years of the medium when it was still totally underground and very few people were watching it um, is, is amazing, you know? And I'm guilty of this myself. I've seen such a small number of films from that time period. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to cover Charlie Chaplin because his movies were the only ones that I've really seen. But that's crazy. D.W. Griffith and, and Lois Weber and like some Italian dudes basically experimented with everything you can do with film <laughs> Uh, before it ever became popular. And we should know that, and we should appreciate that. If you're an artist and you're making a choice, you can enrich that choice by knowing all the other artists who made the choice before you, or at least a small percentage of them. You can't ever know all of them, but 
Your choices can get deeper, more specific, more interesting by being able to see them repeated throughout time. And as a film lover, as a film viewer, seeing a story played out on screen, your experience will get richer and deeper by knowing how this story has been rendered throughout time. Because all stories have been told a million times. There are no new stories ever. The second thing is that culture, art, and film, they just repeat themselves over and over and over again, right? There's the Karl Marx quote, history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce. Great quote, but history doesn't repeat itself twice. It's first as tragedy, then as farce, and then as a tragic farce, and then a tragedy farce, and then a farcical tragedy, and then a tragedy farce, 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 tragedy, farce, farce, farce. These things just cycle through, and we'll see this throughout the Chaplin story. I mean, you think that people being famous for the sake of being famous is a is a new invention? You think cancel culture is a new invention? You think Me Too is a new invention? All this stuff was happening in the teens and 20s, okay? History just repeats itself over and over and over again. It's really important to understanding our modern world. And our modern world is so media-saturated that we can't see the forest for the trees. You know, we can't even imagine and see all the different ways that we're being affected by it. So what better way to learn than go back to the people who experienced this mass media for the first time in the tens, teens, and 20s? This was the first generation or generations that were subjected to living with film, the first ever global mass media. And it made them go crazy. It changed the world, like the printing press or the internet. By learning about them, by learning about their reactions, you know, it helps inform our own lives, our own decisions, our own values. It provides context to both our decisions and the things that we see happening in the world. Okay, that's my long history spiel, okay? All right, moving on. Jeremy writes, as a comic and actor, I can identify working in those small clubs and drinking as a part of the atmosphere, like let's have a drink with the comic or let's party with the actors, still happens today. Thank you so much for sharing, Jeremy. You're absolutely right. So he's talking about how Chaplin's father, Charlie Chaplin Sr., was expected to drink with people after his performance in the music hall. And um, that this ultimately led to alcoholism and a premature death. And you're absolutely right. And I can really attest to that. You know, when I was 19, I was in drama school at NYU. I was acting in some off-Broadway off plays that were getting really good press. And I was one of the first people in my class to have a manager. And I was feeling super cool. And I thought everything was looking up and that my pathway to success was all but guaranteed. Now, I also loved to party. So when I went to a little club on the Lower East Side of Manhattan called The Box, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. The place was amazing, and I think it's worth bringing up because it is truly the modern equivalent to the old London music halls. You know, So it was this very exclusive club. It was kind of like the modern-day Studio 54 of the time. And what made it so appealing was that it featured these multiple variety shows throughout the night. And these shows were wild, where you could see everything from sort of circus acts to these lower Manhattan crazy sex acts, you know, anything that you could imagine you could see on stage there. There was musical performances, dancing naked girls, and it just all exploded into the party and blew people's mind. The guy who created this club was Simon Hammerstein. 
you know, the grandson of Oscar Hammerstein II, you know, Sound of Music. And what he brought to this entertainment, what made it really special is that he gave every one of these little acts, and they were all just about like three minutes long, he gave each one a little story arc. So it wouldn't just be someone on a trapeze. You'd have to have a character. You'd have to have a through line. And the trapeze suddenly became necessary to the character on stage. And it really elevated this form of entertainment. And no one could quite do it like they could. People would pay thousands of dollars to go see this entertainment. And what they didn't know was that they were experiencing the magic of theater. They would go and see these crazy things on stage, and somewhere in the back of their head, they'd be thinking, I could do that. And so at 3 a.m., you know, people were going nuts. Their inhibitions had been blown away by the spectacle. They felt like they were one of the performers, and in a way, they were. The box was so special. It's so special. You know, it's still there. It's still going strong, and, and I'm so proud to have been a part of it. But the thing about it was that the second you walked into the building, you were part of the show. So I started working at the box and immediately it just consumed my entire life. I took a great pride that my job was the best night of your life um, and everything that came along with that. Now, it also took an incredible toll. I finished college, but my acting career disappeared. I couldn't make it to auditions because I was up till six in the morning every night. If I did get to an audition the next day, you know, I was hungover or still drunk. And um, after a few years like that, I ran my life into the ground. You know, I had to move back to my home state of Georgia. And now I haven't had a drink or used a drug in almost 10 years. You know, my sense of artistry and my sense of self was intrinsically tied to the partying. And it took a really long time to disentangle those two parts of my identity. It makes total sense to me why alcoholism and drug addiction is really prevalent in the performing arts. And I believe that that has been true throughout time. Uh, when I learned those details about Chaplin's father, listening to the codependent alcoholic insanity that uh, Charlie observed when Chaplin's dad was uh, living with that woman, Lois, it just breaks my heart. It won't, it, you know, it won't be the last time we cover stories like that, but it just reminds me of things that I've experienced and things that I've seen friends go through. It's very important to me to just state that you do not need to be crazy and you do not need to be a drunk in order to be an artist. These things, it's not a package deal. While it's not really the main topic of Charlie Chaplin's narrative, you know, I do think that we will inevitably cover a director who struggles with substance abuse in the future. And I can promise you here and now, this will not be a story glamorizing addiction, which again, I find to be so much of the problem with the biopics, because even when a biopic, you know, all these sort of rock and roll biopics that come right now, and there's always follow the same trajectory of like, you know, four normal guys get together and start a band and then they blow up and get famous and then they all become drug addicts and then they like come to terms with it and then they like come back together and then they have one big final show. They never really deal with the addiction side in a way that I find honest. And if you're somebody who's struggling with uh, substance use or who is tying your artistry to substance use, you know, just know that there's uh, other pathways out there. Trust me, I'm living proof. Okay, um, moving on. This is the last email of the day. Um, I love this. Julie writes, 
Back in 2007, my mother was in bed hospicing at home. I was sitting beside her like a pillow party, and we were watching Turner Classic Movies on TV. My mother was immobile in the dying stages of multiple sclerosis, with all kinds of medical assistance, including a catheter. A Chaplin film came on, I don't remember which one, but I read out the opening credits to her, starring Charlie Chaplin, directed by Charlie Chaplin, written by Charlie Chaplin, producer Charlie Chaplin. Holy smokes, I said, Chaplin did it all. And after a comedic pause, unlike any I've ever heard, she replied, obviously not a man with a catheter. Love that we were laughing so close to death. Thanks, Charlie Chaplin. Oh my God. I, <laughs> I, I love this story. I love this story. Thank you so much for sharing, Julie. That is just a, such a beautiful and touching and incredible memory. You know, that's the best part of Chaplin's legacy. He could make people laugh in the darkest of times. And I also just love how these movies become such a part of the fabric of our lives. You know, I, I can remember watching Yojimbo, the Akira Kurosawa film with my mom and grandmother, uh, right before my grandmother passed away and she had lost her hearing. So watching a movie with subtitles was kind of perfect and she had never seen it before. And we watched it together and, and she was mesmerized and I'll never forget looking over and seeing her little smiling face and, Anytime that I think about that movie or watch that movie, I can't help but think of my grandmother and that memory. And I, I just love how these films can be a part of that. Now, <laughs> I do have to say, as far as the Chaplin credits go, I mean, they're a little ridiculous. I mean, come on. You know, look, I'm a filmmaker who is also often a, you know, a director, editor, writer, sometimes cinematographer on my own films. And come on, you can't put your multiple names on the credits. That's just vanity credits right there. Don't do it. If you're a filmmaker out there who's saying directed by so-and-so, edited by so-and-so, written by so-and-so, just say film by so-and-so, okay? And just leave it at that, all right? But look, Chaplin was a tryhard. As we will see in the coming episodes, he is so neurotic and insecure and then eventually becomes a totally out-of-control mess. And look, I get that he really wants you to know how much he's doing for these movies. He's really proud of it. But come on, man. Chill out. We get it. You're really talented. Um, okay, guys. I think that's going to do it for this one reeler. We'll be back next week with part two of Charlie Chaplin. And there's also a bunch of stuff coming up that we're going to talk about. I just realized that the ending of this Chaplin series will be right around the premiere of Damien Chazelle's film Babylon. Um, which could be interesting because it's going to be all about sort of the Roaring Twenties film era. Um, and I think Charlie Chaplin is a character in it, so we could maybe talk about that. I'm also going to be bringing my wife on who's never seen a Chaplin film. I think we're going to watch City Lights and we'll get some of her hot takes. Lots of fun stuff coming up. So once again, if y'all have any thoughts, questions, concerns, vegetarian recipes, you can email me at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at strandedonstage. Follow the Royal Film Club. Come join Film Club on Thursday nights. It's a blast. We'll have fun. Okay, uh, that's it. Until next time, that is a wrap. <laughs>